So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the third session, of, and the last, as it turns out, this term of the Eastern East Central European Seminar. The seminar is sponsored by a large AHRC grant. So, without further ado, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome um, Dr. Sophia Diak from Lviv. She is currently the director of the Centre for uh, the History of East Central Europe. Quite a mouthful, but nevertheless, um, it does what it says on the tin. A marvellous institution for those who, many of us know it, but for those who don't, is really something of a sort of trailblazer in Ukraine for risk of sounding patronising, at least exposing Western methodologies to younger Ukrainian scholars, uh, providing an unbiased forum for people across disciplines from official and less official institutions, including the city council. So it really is a wonderful, wonderful place and a, a really a sort of melting pot, an academic kind of melting pot, a wonderful place to work. And uh, Sophia has done uh, many interesting things there, including, as I say, work with the city council as well, so sort of outreach as well as academic. Uh, Sophia has her PhD from um, the University of Warsaw, the Academy of Sciences, Sociology Department, and this, I believe I'm right in saying, is something of a kind of development of your doctoral work. Yes. I think I'll probably leave it there. Without further ado, please, let's welcome Dr. Diak. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me, and it's a pleasure to be here on this public and on-record event. <laughs> <laughs> In my uh, presentation, which is a very general summary uh, of project, which was the doctoral project comparing Lviv and Wroclaw to cities of the Second World War, which is, you know, can be defined as so historical sociology or socializing historical history. I will, I will bring several points I thought I think are important, and then we will have discussion and question, and I am looking forward to that. So how are associations with cities shaped and shared? How do governments and societies create relationship with a city? How does the relationship between cities and residents shape society in turn? Why do some cities seem full of potential, while others only misuse opportunities? What factors make it possible for cities to transform? How do cities remake themselves? These questions are pertinent to many places around the world. But in this talk, let us have a look at two cases in Eastern Europe. Cities which inspire the imagination of visitors and inhabitants. Cities which compete for attention in their countries and internationally. The cities are Lviv, located in the western part of Ukraine, and Wroclaw, one of the most dynamic cities of Poland, close to Polish-German border. Over the last decade, there has been a growing interest in the cities of East Central Europe in the 20th century. The opening of the archives more than 20 years ago allowed more nuanced studies of Soviet and satellite societies. Moreover, more and more studies focused on peripheries and borderlands, including the multi-ethnic places, like these two cities of the region. Um, another very important context for my study and for this talk is, of course, provided by the inquiries into the Second World War in Eastern Europe, as well as inquiries into the impact of the war and overcoming its terrible consequences on transformation brought by change of border, forced migration, as well as what it meant to move on from this terrible experience and make sense of what happened, to use the title of, uh, of work of Amelie Recent studies on networks and milieus in societies are another inspiration for this study. Uh, this approach gives us a more nuanced picture of social dynamics. And finally, it's also about transnational and comparative approaches, which offer new avenues of exploration into this regional in particular. So in my study, by looking at two cities, I have used one case to highlight particular features of the other case. But I also hope that so-called two-city approach captures the dynamic changes in population and political regime in this part of the world. This is also an attempt to overcome, on one hand, a nation-centered scale of historical inquiry, but on the other hand, with the help of comparative approach to, to overcome a one-city microcosm study. 
Wroclaw, a city known before 1945 as Breslau in eastern borderlands of Germany, has been promoting itself as a multicultural and borderland European city since 1990s. Lviv still referred by many as Lvov in Polish, Lemberg in Yiddish and German, and Lvov in Russian, after 1991 was branded as a truly Ukrainian city. This looks very odd if you consider the not so remote past of both places. In 1900, Prussian Breslau was inhabited by more than 400,000 people, in overwhelming majority Germans. Only about 5% of its inhabitants were Jews, and slightly over 1% Poles. At the same time, in Austro-Hungarian Lviv, Lemberg, Lviv, lived a truly mixed population. Among its 150,000 inhabitants, among a half were Poles from Rome Catholics, about one-third Jews, and about 15% Ukrainian Lithuanians from Greek Catholics. The Second World War changed both cities dramatically. Breslau became communist Wroclaw, a home city to its overwhelmingly Polish inhabitants, Lvov-Lemberg was turned in Soviet Lviv, where Ukrainians constituted a vast majority. From the early 90s, local city officials, newspapers, architects, and historians used the world's multicultural, borderland, and European to promote the city of Wroclaw. The motto Wroclaw, the meeting place, was adopted in 1998 as the city's official slogan. By contrast, Lviv after 1991 was largely described as a Ukrainian Piemont in order to highlight its role as the center of cultural and national Ukrainian revival and Western to mark its closeness to Europe. Only very slowly has the image of a multicultural city taken some ground here. It was in 2007 when the city council adopted Lviv's promotional logo and motto, Lviv open to a world. Silhouettes of church towers and town hall referred to different Christian confessions and self-government traditions. Note, however, there is no reference to historical Jewish community. So even if there is a strong historical basis for the multicultural image with all its limits, the challenge now is how to promote it, first and foremost, for the local community, which is largely Ukrainian and so far opts for an ethnically Ukrainian-centered vision of the city's past. The question then arises, why does a city like Lviv, which was a home for three different ethnic communities before the war, and now a major touristic city in Ukraine, do so little to promote itself as a place with rich heritage, cutting across several ethnicities and several cultures? And why does a city like Wroclaw, with comparatively modest multi-ethnic past, promote so strongly the image of multicultural city? In this talk, I will argue that to understand this, we have to examine the post-war experience of both places. It is precisely by looking at options and decisions, limits and possibilities, strategies and work done to make Breslau into Wroclaw and Lvov into Lviv that we can have a more informed answer for this general question. The Second World War forced the integration of two central European cities, Breslov, Wroclaw, Lvov, Lviv, into new symbolic systems of national political belonging, Soviet Ukraine, part of Soviet Union, and communist Poland. But I address this integration and urban transformation through the lens of cityscape and relations with the built environment. I would like to focus here on four points to show how the post-war transformation changed the cities and has shaped their post-communist Soviet perception and image-making today. First, I look into the role of planning in Lviv and rebuilding for Wroclaw. I will take a perspective of how knowledge about newly incorporated cities was acquired, how interactions with surrounding material structures were shaped. Then second, I move to the ways national contents were used to legitimize turning Lviv into Ukrainian Lviv and Breslau into Polish Wroclaw. Here I will focus on the limits of employing ethno-national stories in the cityscape of the cities forcibly reassigned to different national and socialist states. My third focus, thus, is on the importance of the possibility for negotiating space between official and non-official, for lobbying difficult 
stories into public display. And finally, what difference was brought by the presence of a coherent group with its own cultural and professional capital in an almost completely repopulated city of Wroclaw? Cities of borderlands. Affiliated to different states, these two cities were connected occasionally by travel and trade routes. But it was not until the 20th century that they became linked by violence and ethnic cleansing of the Second World War. Breslau was the part of the Third Reich. Lvov was conquered and occupied first by Soviet state and then Nazi Germany. Their population dramatically changed. From the 1930s, the Breslau Jewish community was stripped of its rights and then deported to be killed. From 1939, Lviv became a site of mass repressions and deportation, a site of civilian violence and pogroms in 1941, and the site of the Holocaust between 1949 and 43. As a result of the post-war settlements between allies and the shift of pre-war borders to the West, the new and unprecedented Soviet and communist authorities were established in both places. In both cities, the war and its aftermath marked a split between place and society. Moreover, separated by more than 600 kilometers, the city became tied together by the fact that Wroclaw was a new home for many Poles and surviving Jews who were forced to leave, to leave Lvov. However, the Lviv cityscape survived extraordinarily well, preserving its 90% material fabric. This was exceptional in Eastern and Central Europe. In Wroclaw, by contrast, destruction of material fabric varied from 90% to 40%, depending on the area. So both cities, because of their historical heritage, radical change of population and border location, in their respective Polish communist and Soviet Ukrainian context became associated with unwanted legacies for new authorities and also new inhabitants. Encounter. Pre-war encounter with Lvov and Breslau was an encounter with results of the war cast over two cities. Visually very different, the cities shared two features. They were alien defined respectively as Polish and German and Western European. Here it's important to keep in mind the differences. Uh, the encounter with Lvov in 1944 was actually a second meeting informed by the experience of Soviet occupation in 1939 and 41. The encounter with Breslau was an encounter with the last fortress of the German enemy, Festung Breslau. To start with Lviv. In the end of July 1944, the Red Army entered the city left by the German army and largely controlled by the Polish underground home army. In public, only positive comparisons were allowed. How many factories, schools, and hospitals were built after 1944, comparing to 1939? Internal party state discussions, however, refill repeated references to the city in the first date of Soviet, Soviet occupation in autumn 1939 and this is a positive image. Thus, already in September 1944, the secretary of Lviv Gorkom, it's a city party com uh, committee, Chupis recalls 1939 Lviv as, quote, clean city. He adds that there is an idea that the city became dead with the coming of the Red Army and Soviet. So he con continues, quote, attention should be paid to this issue of cleanness, unquote. And what is more, Chupis announces that Lviv could be known as most clean city in Ukraine. The city is perceived as a site of symbolic struggle and cross-references Lviv and Lviv, Lvov, but also Soviet and non-Soviet. After summer 1944, Lviv was becoming a place of residence and a place of work for many Soviet citizens from the pre-1939 Soviet Union. First waves of newcomers mainly constituted cadres, as the principal aim was to place trusted and experienced people in key positions of the city management. The majority of them were first-generation trained cadre, and for majority this was, for them this was the first encounter with the city, which just recently have been a part of non-Soviet world. Some were claiming the right to return to Lviv as a place of their pre-war 
residents, meaning pre-1941 residents, even if at most for 21 months. Lviv was thus often perceived as a European city by newcomers. Such descriptions could acquire both negative and positive meanings. This largely depended on place and audience. In public discourse, Europe referred to old, bourgeois, decadent, the past Lviv had to overcome. For example, Lviv was defined as a, quote, European-type city, unquote. The streets were narrow and curving, which caused problems with transportation. This was a problem as the city was on the state border and moving the army through it was an important consideration. The city was, in quotation, tricky because the streets layout was such that there was no transit and gradual streets as well as no circular roads connecting them. And the city was dense with many small overlapped, over-neighbored, overpopulated neighborhoods with no division between housing and industrial quarters. Post-war planners arriving in Lviv were in charge of overcoming all these legacies and catching up with urban planning of the Soviet state. But behind closed doors of local party state meetings, one can also find positive comments of Lviv's qualities as old Europe. Pre-Soviet buildings were considered as examples of high-quality construction. In 1958, when Lviv was entering a period of housing boom, the head of the Lviv branch of communal banks summarized that, quote, houses which have, been, have to be sustained and repaired are better than new houses, unquote. Most of Lviv's built environment belonged to another culture of building. This attracted many new inhabitants to the city. Thus, material fabric of the city was a manifestation and a reminder of the past of life of the, of the city. The border with Europe ran through the city itself, both in time and space. This difference between material structure and official policy of evaluating it provoked a whole specter of different and contradictory emotions, from enchantment to rejection, from negative evaluation to opting for precisely pre-Soviet residences, from desire to create something new to overshadow the existing material legacy to the desire of preserve exactly this, this built environment and treat it as a heritage. That's basically now it was almost 1944 to show that apart from broken windows, actually very few buildings were damaged in, in terms of physical environment, uh, environment. In terms of population, it's of course a different picture. Wroclaw, encountering Breslau. As the city was on average 70% destroyed, Wroclaw appeared for many Polish newcomers as first of all a ruined city. Three images dominated, alien Festung Breslau, which was part of the Nazi Germany. Then there was an image of Wild West, rephrasing the official title for Western recovering territories, and very hard to notice in 1945, the old Polish city. For Zygmunt Juganowski, the first view of Wroclaw focused on, quote, ruins, burnt signs, smell of corpses, unquote. It was full of reminders about the war, but also of war crimes committed by Nazi Germans, quote. On the road, we spot an area of barbed wires. They, without doubt, indicated the area of barracks, a camp of in infernal extermination of people for hunger and war, unquote. The scope of the ruins was impressive. Juganowski observed a city, quote, which lost its metropolitan vividness, a city without a heart, stripped of sound, speed, movement, still in boundless tragedy, in unnatural tranquility, trampled, unquote. The city was not only full of ruins, but also of goods. It was both West, Wild West and Klondike, Thus, for one of the settlers, the city, quote, the city was white rich. One could occupy an apartment, a villa, a house after a doctor, a banker, a general. This richness took reason away from many people. Even I, a person from a family of doctors, was losing my mind on the look of goods accumulated here for centuries, unquote. For a short period of post-war years, the city became a merchant place where goods from entire metropolis were on sale. 
Wildest meant also real physical danger and harsh living conditions. Decades later, one student of Wroclaw Polytechnic recalled, quote, destroyed by 75%, Wroclaw was a wild west where one had not only live among ruins, where days and nights were unsecure, with desperate but not answered cries for help from attacked by robbers people in their homes, where even by day one could be attacked on streets, unquote. With years, these awful beginnings would become a part of the foundation story of Polish Wroclaw. Patriotism, both national, but most of us local, was added to cement the story in general Polish context and to elevate the feeling of local pride getting to know the place. For Lviv and Wroclaw, the role of architects and urbanists was difficult to overestimate. Together with the party and state bodies, they were called into this challenging and ideological project of reimagining and remaking Polish Lviv and German Breslau into Soviet Ukrainian Lviv and communist Polish Wroclaw. Creating new places in place of old, they were not only realizing and imposing their visions defined within official and allowed frameworks, but also acquiring knowledge about the places. Hardly could two cities be more different for architects and planners than Lviv and Wroclaw immediately after the war. One was almost ruined, another was almost intact. This radical difference preconditioned interactions with built or, in case of Wroclaw, ruined environment. In Lviv, architects were facing the challenge of where, how, and in what shape to build new city center and new industry, how to embrace the city as a whole and develop an image of its, of its Soviet future for a master plan for a city which was standing almost intact. In Wroclaw, the issue of master plan was second to the practical issue of how to make the city livable, how to rebuild it, and then how to legitimize the Polish presence. Lviv required planning, Wroclaw required rebuilding. Rebuilding is learning, challenges of Wroclaw architects. Many officials, including urban planners and architects, believe that reconstruction will be the best instrument to promote the Polishness of Wroclaw, to show Polish culture's triumph over German barbarism. Reconstruction of the historic fabric of the city known as Breslau became not only a venue of shaping its Polish image, but also a means of getting the place closer and accommodating it as a home. Already in 1945, it was clear that rebuilding of the old city in its medieval limits would be, quote, a priority issue. Unquote. However, more than half a decade was required and dedicated to evaluating what monuments to protect, preserve, and rebuild. This turned to be a highly political and ideologically biased matter. According to propaganda slogans about regaining territories, about Polish return and not arrival into the city, the decisions on what to save and what to destroy were based on judgments as to what could serve as a proof of, quote, times when we were here, quote, that is the old Piast dynasty era between the 13th to 16th centuries. In Wroclaw, architecture was a medium through which professional elites and ordinary inhabitants shaped their understanding and interpretation of the city. In this process, process, to use words of a contemporary, quote, architectural beauty from old times was becoming strangely close and precious, unquote, for Polish architects and professionals dealing with the city reconstruction and exploration. In Wroclaw, their eyes were focusing on the images of eagles and the bolts referring to piast eagles. These images were, quote, familiar from childhood, unquote, and treated uh, with highest respect. The city was scrutinized for the similarities with old Polish cities. Um, and churches, usually built in Gothic style, became knots through which the city was connected to their, quote, our own Polish history, unquote. The example of St. Mary Magdalena Church is one of the most telling and spectacular cases. One of the several main Gothic cathedrals of the city, it was also one of the most destroyed. 
Built between the 13th and 15th century, it was immediately considered as a precious relict of the epoch when the city was under the rule of the Piast dynasty. As such, it was promoted to a symbol of Polish beginnings and achievements in the city. The church's roof was burned, walls were damaged, and one of the two towers was blown up with parts still hanging over surrounding area, becoming constant danger for passing people and transport. Costs of repairs were high, as were challenges for engineering solutions. Yet the decision to keep the church prevailed. It was used for strengthening the story of Polish presence and importance in the city from the very beginning. From the perspective of many years, the project was described as fantastic. Decisions about reconstruction demanded daunting preparations and research. Registration and cataloging of destroyed, damaged, or survived built city fabric took a lot of effort, resources, and time. It was not only necessary for managing the city in terms of reconstruction, but also in terms of acquiring knowledge and familiarity. The emotional link with Wroclaw had to be forged. Wroclaw architect Emil Kaliski compared the city to, quote, a heavily wounded body, unquote, which they, Polish architects, urbanists, planners, builders, officials, were trying to revive, like, like quote, doctors reviving its patient at operation table, unquote. The first interactions with the city there was, quote, scientific, cold, and objective. Unquote. Yet with some time, this closeness and interactions resulted for Kaliski as well as for his colleagues in growing emotional engagement. Quote, Wroclaw quickly ceased to be for us an object of scientific examinations, becoming something more important and close to our hearts, something we become passionate about, turning almost into the meaning of our life. We felt in love. Unquote. To recreate something authentic and valuable in a city where only a few of these architects and preservationists had been before the war demanded a lot of work, creativity, and imagination. Materials were scattered and incomplete. Architects, historians, planners searched for surviving archival and library collections, studied and documented buildings for information, and produced new knowledge about the city in thousands of pages. In Wroclaw, rebuilding of the city produced a milieu of people who learned about the city and took care of it as professionals, but also as its new inhabitants. Planning as learning. Case of dilemmas of Lviv architects. Work on the first master plan of Soviet Lviv lasted from 1944 to 1946. By the time it was approved in 1956, it was heavily outdated. Its final evaluation started, stated that it did not provide, quote, precise and full answer how to solve important question of creating complete image of Soviet Lviv, city in Lviv, unquote. Yet this work was important as a practice of reimagining the city and thus appropriated it symbolically after military and administrative takeover. Years of elaborating, discussing, corresponding, and meeting of different professionals from Lviv via Kiev to Moscow situated the city within the framework of the post-war Soviet Union and Stalinist reconstruction of the country. In the almost undestroyed city, there was no urgency in developing plans for rebuilding. Although different than in Wroclaw, the situation in Lviv still bore some similarity. It was also a kind of learning process about the city space and built environment. The work of urban planning for newly arrived Soviet architects and urbanists was largely theoretical. The main questions were how to deal with pre-Soviet historic environment, how to integrate it if not to destroy it and thus how to shape on this basis an image of a Soviet city for Lviv. It was achieved through reimagining rather than remaking. This process meant both overcoming the barrier for the alien, Polish and bourgeois cityscape, as well as also symbolically competing with it. It was precisely the central historic part of Lviv where new Soviet authorities faced a challenge of adapting and integration Lviv cityscape, 
associated with legacies of other states, but also social systems. The faults of the capitalist planning were discussed in length throughout the master plan of Lviv. But the document also admits that, quote, by the standards of communal infrastructure and amenities, Lviv belongs to the most orderly cities in the Soviet Union, unquote. Thus, architects, urbanists, as well as newcomers could have compared Soviet and non-Soviet urban planning and projects, especially in the areas of housing and infrastructure. This brought new experience to Soviet state, which had indeed inherited the majority of its cities from the Russian Empire, uh, where projects of, but, but in this, because of time, but also geography, in these cities, the projects of urban reforms were comparatively short-lived. Uh, moreover, Soviet planners, officials, and urbanists had acquired some knowledge and experience from more than two decades of Soviet governance in tackling urban problems in interwar Soviet Union. Thus, the clash between capitalist Lvov and the Soviet model was in a way more matured and informed by, on one hand, interwar developments in the Soviet state, and um, on the other hand, developments in neighboring Poland and country considered a part of the West, but also by interwar decade, which was a time of, of urban reforms, and Lviv was, was one of the sites of them. Thus, the issue of symbolic competition became of utmost importance. It was not only competition between the Soviet Union versus the Second Polish Republic, but also between the Russian Empire, whose heritage was selectively incorporated into the concept of Soviet patriotism in the vacant during the Second World War, versus its neighboring Austro-Hungarian Empire. It is impossible to understand the story of Lviv without taking into account this transnational and trans-imperial aspects. Such competitive environment influenced both decisions and personal self-evaluation and its team. In Lviv, an imagined competition took place between the new Soviet Lviv architects and city planners on one side and their Polish and Austrian predecessors on the other. For example, an architect working on the reconstruction of the juncture of Red Army Street and the city set in the immediate post-war years explicitly named a criterion of success to create something that neither Emperor Franz Josef nor Josef Pilsudski had succeeded in achieving. Moreover, in discussing and later approving the site behind the Opera Theater, Theater never realized. For a new Soviet square in Lviv, one of the main arguments was again about competitiveness. How the new project will look against the old urban environment, in particular the, um, the opera theater. Architect Gennady Skupchenko at a conference of Lviv architects in 1947 pointed out that, quote, here in Lviv and Western Ukraine, there will always be a comparison between new and old. Therefore, if, we, if the new will be because of current complications and problems, even a little worse than the old, the perception will be wrong." Unquote. Presumably, to concentrate resources and to de decrease the chances of being a little worse, efforts were put into several main projects. Notably, none of these projects was located in the historical city center, or even directly adjust to it. Here was a way of avoiding competition by capitulating. So this is the site of Opera Theater, and the project on the previous site was just outside, or just behind it. Um, so this is coming gradually to my second and very quickly third and fourth point is uh, about flexibility and limits in employing Polish and Ukrainian stories. As both Lviv and Wroclaw were forcibly reassigned to different national and socialist states, the importance of a national, respectively Polish and Ukrainian rhetoric in legitimizing these new cities was crucial. This rhetoric was incorporated in, a in the framework of proper Soviet and socialist nationalism. Here I will argue that what mattered in the long run it was a difference in limits of employing ethno-national stories in the cityscape, but also more, probably, more broadly beyond cityscape, of course. Thus, what could and could not be brought into official and public display gained special importance in both cities in the late 80s. 
in Lviv, a city with a history of Ukrainian pre-war national movement, the limits were very restrictive. The non-Soviet version of the national story became and remains a central topic in the 90s and throughout 2000s. In Wroclaw, as a city lacking Polish national history, the topic of the Kresy, the Eastern Polish territories lost to the Soviet Union, emerged strongly as the communist state was disintegrating. Yet it did not become a definitive component of Wroclaw post-communist image. This was because in Wroclaw, unlike in Lviv, from the mid-1950s, there was a partial incorporation of what I call difficult topics, topics which were taboo. The lost story ter territories was one of such topics. Um, I will now discuss the limits for Lviv uh, and take the example of um, one monument to Ukrainian poet Ivan Franko, and then I will focus on incorporating Polish difficult stories in Wroclaw public space. Ivan Franko, Soviet Ukrainian. The Soviet approach to its official representation and symbolic cityscape in Lviv was a one-nation biased and censored promotion of a specific Ukraine Soviet version of Ukrainian nationality. One and other imported national stories, Polish and Jewish, were purged or heavily downplayed. The story of Ukrainian unification was fashioned by of 1939 was fashioned by local and Kiev party state officials and intelligentsia as a culmination of social and national struggle of local Western Ukrainian people. Official identity had to overcome a powerful story, however, of the massive pre-1939 Ukrainian national movement through a wide spectrum of, 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 of politics, uh, from extreme to, to, to moderate, as well as the post-war story of nationalist underground and forced um, underground Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. Given these restrictions by the late 1980s, the content of Soviet Ukrainian view was limited. And we can see with this monument of Ivan Franko, poet, writer, and political figure born and active in Austrian Galicia at the turn of 19th and 20th century, you know, what were the limits? So the first major monument unveiled in Lviv was in 52 was dedicated to Lenin, no surprise. The decision of making it was passed in 1945 together with decisions about two other monuments to major Ukrainian figures, Ivan Franko and Shevchenko. Taras Shevchenko monument is a story separately unveiled in the 90s, but Franco was unveiled in 1964. The monument, however, was only one element of introducing him into the Lviv cityscape. There were also plaques marking the sites, street names, dedication of institution, most importantly, university, Jan Kazimierz University before the war became in 1939, Ivan Franco University. The idea was to show a particular image of Franco, after all, socialist writer, but a person of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, most of all. Uh, according to Great Soviet Encyclopedia, Franco was, quote, Ukrainian writer, scientist, public activist, persecuted and arrested for revolutionary activity. Moreover, he is described as a fighter, quote, against ideas of Ukrainian bourgeois nationalism, unquote. Differentiating Franco from any nationalist and bourgeois connotation was a strategy to cut him also the context of the city, Lvov-Lemberg, as a place in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Repeating campaigns of fighting against bourgeois nationalism also served as a learning process of finding out the limits of what was allowed into public display and what has to be left out. In 1949, this lesson was learned by Taras Franco, Ivan Franco's son and director of the Franco Memorial Museum. The head of the Lviv City Party Committee, Boris Koval, took his alleged statement very seriously, and here is not the point whether these words were spoken out or not, they were discussed. So, quote, alleged quote, alleged um, quotation, uh, discussed, quote, Ukrainians alone could not produce such a great man as Franco. Therefore, German blood should be there. 
probably some German Frank married a Ukrainian woman, and in this way people get better. Выправляются. So this is alleged quote from Taras Franco, son of Ivan Franco. I mean, the statement was harshly criticized as an attempt to link Franco to German and West European culture, even if just for some family story. Prioritizing Western European culture over national culture, culture of peoples of the Soviet state could not go without punishment. Franco's son was fired from the university and the lesson was learned. Removed from the Western European, German Austro-Hungarian context, Franco served, served as a symbol of the Ukrainian tradition of the city and a link to Ukrainian intelligentsia. In 1950, the head of the party state in Lviv County, Ivan Hrushetsky, invited representatives of local, meaning from Western Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian intelligentsia for a meeting. The meeting started with a question, very openly quote, we, Soviet party state, are interested in what you imagine the monument should look like, unquote. The question was important because it had to lead to the correct decision since the monument, as Hrushetsky described, quote, would establish Lviv as an old Ukrainian city. There were no doubts that the best place would be in front of the Ivan Franko University, former Jan Kazimierz University, and before that, the Galician Parliament. The figure, it was thought, had to be realistic and magnificent aside, both assumptions uh, realized. But there was the issue with Franco grave at the Lechakiv Cemetery, a site of burial for Lambeck, with nobility and bourgeoisie, and small bourgeoisie, okay, inhabitants. Uh, mainly Polish. Um, this is the, the grave. Um, the monument is from 1920s. Uh, the grave from the, period, uh, uh, from the First World War. Another issue was connected to um, the sculpture itself, more specifically to the artist beyond, behind the monument. Sergei Litvinenko was born in Poltava, a city in eastern Ukraine. That was appropriate, but his education was less so. He studied in Krakow and Paris. Even more problematic and hardly acceptable was that Litvinenko's biography contained experience which had to be purged from the Soviet-Ukrainian narrative. As a soldier of Ukrainian National Republic in 1919, he left for Poland after the Bolshevik victory and worked in Lviv. What's worse, he worked as a sculptor in the city under Nazi occupation and went to Germany in 1944. Moreover, he was an active member of the Ukrainian diaspora in the South, in the North America, in the USA. But there could be no new mon monument and no new grave. So the artist vanished. His name was repressed. His works in Lviv Museum were destroyed in, really, in early 1950s. The monument was known and recognizable, an important visual element of Franco's story and the site, important site in the tourist guides uh, and publications. It but its design was subordinated to official Franco reading of socialist fighter and Ukrainian revolutionary, either in biography or in the monument, or even in the biography of the sculpture of the monument, Franco had to be cut off on unwanted context and not desired for Ukrainian Soviet, Soviet vision. What makes a difference? Transferred milieus and negotiated public space. So here I would like to focus on how difficult topics were brought into public display and what was the role of a coherent group or milieu with similar experiences in shaping an almost completely repopulated city. It's about Wroclaw. It was the possibility of negotiating space between official and non-official, between what was ideologically allowed into public and what could possibly be blobbed into of public display that made Wroclaw's development so peculiar than compared to Lviv. Here, the crucial factor was the presence of a group with the leverage to lobby its case and negotiate content. Wroclaw had such a coherent group with strong and legible cultural capital, a group of people who came from Lviv and the Kresy generally. Kresy is a term to describe eastern borderlands of Polish state, which now include Western Ukraine, Belarus, Belarus and significant parts of Lithuania. There are, these are territories conferred in 1939 by the Soviet Union. In Wroclaw, the population from this region constituted about 90%, 19%. 
directly from the Lviv region, not only city but the region, came about 10% of post-war inhabitants. Lviv heritage and tradition was officially problematic because, of course, they, this was this was also symbols of anti-Soviet reminiscences, trauma for lost homes, lost statehood, for many Poles, arrest, deportations. But the experience of people coming, especially from such urban centers as Lviv, was in dire need in Wroclaw. This partly allowed members of this group to articulate their cultural and social capital, even if it was often at odds with official ideology. Teachers at schools, professors at universities, architects, bureaucrats in municipal bodies, writers and artists, they were the people who were forced to Lviv, settled in Wroclaw, and became actively engaged in bringing new life into the city. To be sure, it was not a simple story. Lviv aggressive were heavy with references to non-communist Polish statehood and tradition, and most of all, to repressions and conquer of the Soviet Union of Poland of 19, in 1939. For state administration supervising incorporation of new Western territories, people from, quote, large cities like Lviv and Vilno were a pool for repopulating large cities of regained territories, unquote. In 1946, Eugeniusz Romer, a prominent Polish geographer and cartographer from pre-war Lviv University, argued that transfer of Lviv institutions and cultural goods will first enhance Polish cultural landscape and second would mean the form, that former Lvovians have, quote, accepted the thought that Lviv is lost, unquote. For Pavel Rybitsky, a sociologist from Katowice, it's a different geographer and sociologist, this was exactly the wrong way of thinking. In his opinion, quote, to build new Wroclaw, unquote, what was needed was a team of cultural workers aware of their mission in the West and not cultural remains from the Lviv. But in Wroclaw, many of these needed experts were either coming from the Lviv and Kreso or were trained there. Key institutions of post-Wroclaw post Wroclaw traced their pedigree to Lviv. Such entangled, entangled uh, situation gained its own dynamic. And the final case, it's Ratzlawicka panorama I picked up here, a story developing over about three decades after 1956, shows how through negotiations and struggle for displaying what was different from or difficult for official narrative, what can be called public space and public involvement in the city developed. I mean, it's only one case, have a look, let's have a look at that. Panorama, a monumental, 15 by 114 meters squared painting which depicted the battle of the Polish Kostyushka Prize against the Russian Imperial Army in 1794 was brought from Lviv in 1946. Not only was it one of the major Polish symbols, but a key Lviv symbol. In 1956, the Committee for the Rebuilding of the Ratzlawice Panorama, 56 is very important, was organized with the support of the head of the City Council of Wroclaw. The committee succeeded in organizing an architectural competition and fundraising for construction and restoration. By, 1950, by 1966, the building to display the panorama was 70% complete. But for the next decade, all work stopped. According to the head of Wroclaw Regional Council, quote, in Central Committee of the Workers' Party in Warsaw, the panorama had many opponents who feared that making it available to audience would incense the Soviet Union. In 1980, the panorama was taken to Wroclaw for conservation, which steered the fears in the city that it might not return. Under the pressure of local community, in the context of strikes and emerging Solidarność movement, the authorities gave support to this project and Panorama was brought back to Wroclaw within several months. To acknowledge the importance of public support, the head of the committee published an open letter in newspaper, local newspaper. Gratitude was addressed to, quote, workers of big and small enterprises and services of Wroclaw, employees of higher educational institutions, academic and creative associations, student and school, stu uh, and school students, to people of various professions and views who united in common effort of saving monument of national culture. Negotiation and involvement of the public was perceived as very important value of achieve and achievement 
for this case, but generally as well. Wroclaw Evening Newspaper, Wieczór Wrocławia, wrote that in this and other important matters, quote, authorities should lead a dialogue with public. Official opening took place on June 14, 1985, but there is one final twist. In fact, party states stated the credit for achievement of the Wroclawice panorama as a way to legitimize itself, so it was a big problem solemn opening, but this was hardly possible against political and social developments of the 80s. In conclusion, I would like to return to the questions which, with which I started. What factors make it possible for cities to transform? How do cities remake themselves? As I tried briefly to show with my talk today, one important issue is the difference in the result of the war. One city was almost completely destroyed and presented a blank slate, demanding not only considerable investment, but also active and gradual engagement. In Lviv, by contrast, there was no such total destruction. The cityscape was just inserted with new meanings. Thus, efforts were primarily put into symbolic appropriation as well as overwriting the existing space. This attempts indeed left a trace of documents and documentation, but very few visible changes. Planning, but little rebuilding. Here we come to my second point about the importance of local milieus in transforming Wroclaw and Lviv. While Wroclaw benefited from a more participatory mode of making and appropriating the city, in Lviv there was very limited engagement of what we can describe as the local milieu. The only particular case is a preservation movement, which maybe we will return to in, in discussion, but very, very limited. Of course, this brings us to the question not explicitly discussed in this talk, how milieus function in a Soviet Republic versus satellite state. But I believe that the crucial factor, in fact, was the difference in backgrounds of available cadre and people involved in two cases. While in Lviv there were often first-generation Soviet-trained professionals, in Wroclaw many of them received training in interwar Poland, and this is what they, they, they had to be relied upon that, and system had to rely upon them as well. The difference in their connections, experience, and more, most of all of their imagination led to the ground for the city's abilities to flourish and meet challenges of the pro-Soviet present. And here I end. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you too.